Aquaculture is one of humanity's crowning achievements, the ability to feed ourselves via a network of global, national and local food systems. Agriculture is a foundational block critical to our success as a civilization. But at this point in our shared history, that very foundational block is now starting to fail. Economic imbalances, labour shortages and the huge environmental impacts of agriculture has led us down a path that is totally unsustainable. Something has to change and introducing new technology to agriculture might just help us steer away from the bleak future we're likely all staring at. So far in this podcast series, we have explored the complex issues facing the food system, including labour shortages, poor farmer profitability, and the huge environmental toll modern agriculture takes on the planet. We've asked why agriculture needs entrepreneurs to help drive change, and explored how to best support emerging ag tech solutions. We've also spoken to farmers about how they can better engage with entrepreneurs and the barriers to adoption that they face. And we learned more about business accelerators and farmer-led support for innovative new companies. In the last episode, we heard from three entrepreneurs about their experiences starting a company in the world of agriculture, with all the opportunities and challenges that come with it. While researching this podcast, a recurring theme that came up in so many of my conversations was access to finance for starting businesses. As with most startups, money is the one thing they need and can be super hard to find. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about models of financing entrepreneurial ventures. I didn't set out to explore investment models, and you might think that this has nothing to do with how we make agriculture more productive, profitable and sustainable. But as I researched this topic, it rapidly became clear to me that what drives behaviours and incentives all the way through the chain of an entrepreneurial ecosystem is the model of investment used. I'll be looking at the model that's most prominent in the contemporary startup world, as well as emerging and alternative models that may offer better solutions, in particular for ag tech startups. I'll also be asking whether some new ideas around financing startups might be really helpful in creating a better ecosystem for entrepreneurs tackling the issues facing modern agriculture. I'm going to start off by looking at the classic venture capital or VC finance model. Two of the three entrepreneurs I spoke to in episode four have venture capital backers, and this type of investment is really dominant in the landscape of entrepreneurship and startups. Not all businesses need ongoing tranches of investment. Some become self-funding and grow with their own resources. Focusing on achieving profitability is usually a much stronger foundation than a high-stakes model of quote-unquote blitzscaling. The growth and pursuit of market share, often without profitability or a sound financial model, and sometimes even without revenue. However, whichever route, the need for some kind of investment to develop a product and team, create kit and inventory, and move quickly before copycats can emerge, is a challenge that most businesses face. And in the UK in 2019, the most recent year for which I have data, at least 58% of investment raised by ag tech companies came from VC firms or corporate VCs. During my time at Stanford, which is at the epicenter of Silicon Valley and the Silicon Valley model of entrepreneurship that we discussed in episode two, 
I learned a lot about VC. Indeed, many of my MBA classmates have gone on to found or run VC funds or be backed by them. So the natural place to start, given its prevalence, is to get a better understanding of what exactly venture capital is. In episode two of this podcast, we talked about the impact that Silicon Valley has on our mental model of entrepreneurship. The classic story of investment in that model goes something like this. A new business is initially financially supported by the entrepreneurs themselves, and then money from the three Fs, friends, family, and fools. It's important to note that all investing in a new business is risky, and the earlier in its life cycle, the riskier it is. So these are the bravest, most trusting, or most foolish investors of all. After this, as the company needs more capital, an angel investor or two might step in, typically a high net worth person with deep pockets, who's willing to invest a larger sum of money, usually in return for a share of the business. Assuming all goes well and the company continues to grow, even larger sums of money are then needed. The founders turn to professional investors, people who are paid to find promising startups to invest in, using capital that comes from endowments, wealthy families, maybe even pension funds, etc. These are venture capitalists. The job of these professional investors is to ensure that their investments generate a good return for the ultimate owners of the capital who entrusted them the money to invest. The venture capital model we see today is as much part of the Silicon Valley story as the microprocessor. VCs are not looking for any old company to invest in. They have very specific needs in order to make their business model work. We'll dig into these in more detail, but in summary, some of the top priorities for an attractive VC investment are, one, a company that could grow to be really large and really valuable. Two, that it can do this relatively quickly. Three, a company that can be sold or launched on the public stock market. And four, all of this has to happen in about a 10-year timeframe and without too much by way of capital requirements. These requirements and their fit with AgTech is something we'll explore in more detail. But before I do that, bear with me while I do a little refresh on some key principles in finance, which will help in this conversation. One is that when it comes to investing, the greater the risk, the greater the reward that is expected. Startup investing is risky, and so the expectation is that the returns from investing in venture capital will be greater than those that could be made through other less risky routes like, say, investing in the stock market. Another is the difference between equity and debt. Typically, the VC fund or funds take equity, a share of ownership of the company, in exchange for the investment. This is because if the company is successful, it allows an almost unlimited upside. The company, and hence the investor's share of it, could grow to be worth almost any amount of money. If the company is not successful, however, the investor may lose all their money. This is quite different from debt, such as a loan. Debt is less risky, but has less scope for making outsized gains, because the repayment terms on that debt define how much return will be given. Okay, so back to venture capitalism. I mentioned that the opportunity to grow into a giant, highly valuable company is important. One of the reasons for this is an expectation baked into this method that most of the ventures they back will fail. 
Rasmus Hartmann, an associate professor at the Copenhagen Business School, who we've heard from in previous episodes, explained it like this. It's very, very hard for even very skilled venture capitalists to pick winners. And I mean, here we're talking about people whose job it is and whose expertise should be identifying companies that have the potential to become very valuable. And that's what they do. That's why they get why they get funding from other sources so that they can invest. So what venture capitalists will often do, especially in the tech sector, is to build a portfolio and hope that some of these companies succeed and hope that the ones who succeed really succeed wildly. Right? So everyone is hoping to have the new Google, the new Facebook, and then to have a portfolio that's big enough to capture those outliers because it's really the outliers that drive your returns. Correlation Ventures, a data-driven VC fund, published a report in 2019, which estimated that 64% of all VC-backed companies return a loss. This means to offset these losses and make the financial return the investors want, the remaining wins have to be big, which is why the term unicorn has entered our business vocabulary. It's a term for those very rare young companies that grow to a big win, a value of $1 billion or more. It's the holy grail of VC investment. To give you an idea of how rare this kind of unicorn company is, to quote VC firm partner Mike Maples, 10 companies out of 10,000 every year create 95% of all the value in the startup business. Or using some UK-based stats, there have been 16 venture-backed companies in the UK that have achieved unicorn status in the last 10 years. That's a minuscule 0.2% of all UK-based VC-backed companies. Or put another way, it's just 0.0002% of all the companies founded in the UK in a 10-year period. It's really, really tiny. Some ag tech companies absolutely fit this template of being able to grow very big, very fast with relatively little investment. A poster child for this is Climate Corp, an agriculture and weather data company which was sold to Monsanto for almost a billion dollars in 2013. But many, many companies do not fit so well. Peter Hertz is the founder of the VC fund First Course Capital, which he runs alongside the not-for-profit business accelerator Food System 6 that we looked at in episode two. In reality, venture capital only serves a vanishingly small percentage of all the startups uh, and all of the innovation that happens. It's, it's vanishingly small. Uh, admittedly, though, you know, the very biggest outcomes and therefore the most visible uh, tend to be these venture capital backed entities and understanding where your innovation fits will save you a lot of time because if you are building something that really isn't venture capital financeable, then, you know, you can avoid going through that whole process and uh, structure what you're building in a way that will appeal to capital sources that will fund it. One reason that VC is not a good fit for lots of ag tech companies is that the diversity and complexity of agriculture makes it harder for one product or service to be a good fit for a huge market in the way that software for personal computers or mobile phones could be. It's also because much of the work in agriculture is not in data or computing, it's in physical stuff. 
and that often means a need for capital-hungry inventory or infrastructure. It's a lot easier to roll out a digital solution that exists on a computer than a physical solution that needs to be shipped out to clients, installed and connected, and staff trained to use it. So Peter believes it's important that entrepreneurs don't just look to VCs as the only form of funding, because so few companies fit the VC criteria. We talk to somewhere around three or four dozen companies we, we pass on for everyone we invest in. And, and many of them are innovations that, that may well be interesting. And we help them, uh, guiding them to uh, sources of capital that are more aligned with what they are trying to build. For example, there are many innovations that require uh, infrastructure. And it turns out one of the better ways, rather than venture capital, if you need expensive infrastructure to do an innovation, uh, you can actually build out a mix of capital sources where the uh, equipment, the infrastructure, the plant, whatever it is, can be financed with debt that's secured by the plant itself. And then the uh, risk equity that you need to raise is much smaller. And you can get that from many different sources. Sarah Nolet is a food systems innovation expert, the CEO and founder of Agthentic, a global food and agriculture strategy firm, and co-founder of Tenacious Ventures, Australia's first dedicated agri-food tech VC firm. She also recognizes that not all businesses are a fit for VC funding. We see a lot of businesses that um, look amazing. Like we just know they're going to do really well. Like they just, it's a great business. It's a great team. It's a great area. They've got customers but it's not a fit for venture capital. So we look for, as you said, a certain timeline for our returns. Like our fund is, is 10 years with two one-year extensions. Traditionally, people in venture are looking for a roughly five to seven year kind of exit timeframe. And so the timeline might be one and returns profile might be one. If that business is doing well, they've got customers, but based on the size of the market or the speed, you know, maybe they get bought for 3X or 5X or 8X. And venture is looking for... 10x plus returns, you know, 20, 30, 100, right, is, is what people talk about. And so it might be a really good business, but just might not be a fit for venture. So if we've explored questions of scale and capital requirements, let's also look at the questions of time frame and the potential for exits, which Sarah mentioned. Many ag tech companies take a long time to build. The entrepreneurs we spoke to in episode three described similar timelines years of development before achieving any significant sales, and then acquiring customers through a slow, steady process. All were more than five years old and were only just starting to scale up acquiring customers. And yet, as you heard from Sarah, most VC funds have promised their investors their money back in a fixed period of time, usually 10 years or so. There is a lot of talk of patient capital, and some of the most famous VC firms, like Sequoia recently announced, are moving away from a fixed time frame. But even so, in any investment, the longer the capital is tied up, the greater the return expected at the end. So a related question is about exits. I mentioned that VC investors get equity, a share of the company, in exchange for their investment. The problem with this is that it's not very liquid. It's normally only turned into cold, hard cash when someone else buys that equity off you. And this is why the focus on an exit is so important. 
VC firms prefer to back companies that can exit by being acquired by another company or by going public, that is, floating on the stock exchange. One of the concerns many in the ag tech community have is that it may be difficult to find an exit. In the first two episodes of this podcast, I touched on the fact that the companies that input to agriculture, such as agrichemical or machinery companies, and the offtake companies like grain merchants and supermarkets, are highly consolidated and dominated by really a few huge venerable companies. One consequence of this is that there are fewer companies around who are able and willing to acquire an innovative new ag tech company. Sarah Nolette echoed this sentiment. Where the exit's coming from is one a lot of people are talking about. Is SPACs the right model? Uh, special purpose acquisition companies, is it going to come through acquisitions by um, the incumbents in inputs or equipment or whatever it might be? Is it going to come from tech companies coming in from other spaces? We've seen Google Ventures and Microsoft and firms from outside ag making investments. And so what kinds of exits will we see and where will those come from? Uh, that's obviously on everyone's mind, including ours. And you know, time will continue to tell. There is one final question of fit that I want to explore, which hinges around what you're trying to achieve with your investment. VCs are professional organizations set up to take an investor's money and turn it into more money by investing it in promising young ventures. But as we discussed early on in this series, we do need innovation in agriculture not solely to make money, but also to address some of the social and environmental issues. And sometimes, these goals are at odds with each other. To be fair, almost all ag tech investors I spoke to described, in effect, a Venn diagram, with their focus being in the area of overlap between major social or environmental impact and strong potential financial return. Sarah Nolet's Tenacious Ventures is an example of this type of company, seriously committed to creating environmental improvement through supercharging the growth and impact of their portfolio companies. Our fund is what's called non-concessionary. So we are an impact fund. We Everything we do has an impact lens. If you think about a kind of floor for returns that we wouldn't invest if something isn't likely to clear that floor, we also have a floor for impact. And so we need things that clear both of those bars. And we think that's actually a really big space and a really big opportunity given all the pressures and trends around um, climate risk and uh, climate mitigation potential and consumer sentiment uh, in agriculture, especially. So we need solutions that actually are better for the environment. And that's what people will be adopting. And therefore, that will um, drive returns as well. I mean, there are plenty of funds that are have concessionary returns. So they'll actually sacrifice a little bit on the return side of things, um, or expected return side of things, so that they can have more of uh, that impact potential and fund things that might otherwise not get off the ground. So it really is a whole world that's opening up as we need more blended finance and and different kinds of capital coming into this space. For us, we don't really think there's a trade-off. We think that agriculture is a unique opportunity where doing good and doing well are, are truly aligned. Peter Hertz's VC fund, First Course Capital, also has strong goals for the kind of companies that they will back. Really, as a fund at 1CC, our goal is to deliver market rate returns for the venture capital asset class while delivering impact on the food system. The companies that we seek out are ones that have uh, the real potential to deliver a financial return, as well as 
have impact on the food system. And so that is a requirement for every company we, we ultimately invest in at First Course Capital. The, the view is that you know, if you can't create something that's sustainable, then it's not going to have an impact. So that's, that, is, that is crucial. So for most ag tech companies, seeking VC investment is not the right model. The requirements of the venture capital business mean that even with an impact focus, only a small subset of all the potential technologies that could be brought to market are a good fit. And this matters because VC and corporate VC, which are the same model but owned and funded by an industry participant, are highly active in the ag tech space. And their model of investing creates a template used by an even larger proportion of investments, such as very often those made by family offices or angel investor groups. One final consideration before we leave this topic of fit. We've talked so far about whether a particular startup is the right fit for the VC business model. But for many entrepreneurs themselves, VC is not a fit for how they want to run their businesses. We previously talked about the toll that entrepreneurship takes on a person's financial, relationship and psychological health. The VC model adds fuel to this dynamic because there's a real asymmetry in risk between the entrepreneur and the investor. Rasmus Hartman again. Of course, the difference here is that a venture capitalist can invest in what we call a portfolio of companies. They can invest in 100 companies. And so they can be happy with basically 90 of them never creating any returns. Doesn't really matter that much. If there are 10 that do or nine that do okay and one that does incredibly well. But of course, the entrepreneur can't really diversify in that way. They can't have a portfolio. Um, they have one company and will often, as part of that high-risk strategy, be pushed. If they thought they should have more interest, they will be pushed to have only that interest and to try to make that do incredibly well. And so, yeah, they can't diversify. You might, if you say my whole career is going to be spent in entrepreneurship, you might have four shots, right? four companies that you can really invest the time and effort in to get it, um, get it far, but that's not very much. right? If you know that success is very rare, then four chances is not very much. Right? Four spins at the roulette won't, won't make your chances really good. Orni Patton Power is an academic, author, an advisor, and an angel investor. She echoes this question of fit for entrepreneurs and VCs, stressing that entrepreneurs seeking finance really need to take into consideration not just the terms of the finance, but the expectations around how that business will then be run. You want to have capital that allows you to go in the direction of travel that you want to go to as a company. So when you're pushed into this hyper-growth mentality or the growth at all cost or the build fast and break things um, idea of Silicon Valley, that can really be antithetical to what a lot of founders want, both out of their business, but also what I find out of their personal lives. So this need to work, you know, 18 hour days over, you know, multiple years because you have venture capitalists that are saying you need to have a thousand percent, you know, month on month growth to be able to be um, achieving what you what you've said. You know, a lot of founders are saying, well, that's not I, I'm I, 
I, I, I'm happy to work hard, but I, I didn't sign up for, you know, this to be something that completely takes over my life. And it also, in a lot of ways, assumes that the founder is, you know, a young, unattached individual that is able to spend 18 hours a day. So what about the, the mothers, the fathers, the, you know, the, the children that are worth looking after parents? There's, there, there are so many ways in which people want to have fuller lives than this kind of Silicon Valley, you know, work until you drop kind of approach. And, and that's what I find with um, the founders that, that I talked to is they, they were afraid to talk about that, that they wanted some balance in their business because it was seen as, as a weakness. And it was seen as something that then they were not investable because they weren't willing to sacrifice. And so I think that this ability to then grow a company potentially for a long period of time at a sustainable pace and, and run it the way you want to run it is another advantage of taking on the right type of capital. It's not just that you can access capital, it's actually that you can use the capital to be able to create the impact you want to create, um, both externally on the community, as well as potentially just internally within your own company culture. What other alternatives exist? If this dominant investment model of VC is only a good fit for some entrepreneurs and very few ag tech companies, the ones that might meet venture capitalist expectations of huge growth, high returns and fast exits, there ought to be other options out there, right? Venture capital wasn't always the go-to solution for financing risky ventures. It evolved from the 1970s, taking advantage of a particular set of circumstances and opportunities as the computing revolution took off. But prior to that, economic history is littered with innovations in financing risky ventures. If we look back into history and forward to the future, can we find other models and do they have different dynamics? One of the oldest forms of providing finance for innovation is a wealthy individual with a particular interest in a project, putting up the cash and being willing to take the risk. From the explorer Christopher Columbus to the steam engine entrepreneur George Stevenson, many breakthroughs were financed by a small handful of wealthy individuals willing to take a risk with direct investment of their own money. Wayne Gordon is an investment professional and former farmer. He works with the chief investment office at UBS, focused on global food and agriculture. Being in the private banking domain, Wayne deals with lots of high or ultra high net worth individuals and family offices. Primarily, this means wealthy individuals or families interested in investing in a range of investments to protect and grow their assets. Wayne has observed an increasing interest in agriculture as part of a portfolio of investments, especially as global investment yields have slowed. He started by describing how, with global interest yields falling, some have invested in agriculture as part of their portfolio because it's not so connected to the global business cycles as some other sectors. But others have different motivations. In short, individuals and families with a lot of money to invest have been increasingly turning to agriculture in various ways. Sometimes this is because there are financial benefits, such as better financial returns, more stability in the portfolio, tax breaks, and so on. Sometimes it's because of their particular interests in food, the rural economy, or the environment. And sometimes these investors specifically want to invest in ag tech companies. 
I think what you find is that people who invest in food and, and agriculture uh, have uh, that basic um, sort of interest um, that they do want to uh, make a difference to either the food they eat or the way in which food is produced or indeed um, look at areas like genetics where they uh, can, at the, at the end of a 20-year investment, for example, look at something that they have tangibly made a difference to. So very much akin to the reason why often farmers actually farm. You know, they want to see the improvement of their soils or they want to see the improvement of the countryside, etc. I suppose, in a way, they probably would have been farmers themselves if they found it earlier in life. Wayne went on to tell me that he's seen a number of successful investors looking to ag tech businesses, such as vertical farming, alternative protein or automated greenhouses, many of whom have been involved in startups in other areas, such as healthcare or broader technology applications. We had a couple of investors who uh, looked specifically into um, lab-based protein or alternative proteins. And so for them, this was more an interest in the idea of being able to produce protein either through plants or protein through cells. And uh, it was an interest they had in improving, for example, the, the delivery of the product or uh, they had a concentrated look at animal uh, welfare issues, and they particularly wanted to focus on on that particular part of the market. And so they sort of went at it from that angle. I would argue that the acceptance of, of private markets and, and this sort of startup investing is, is much more um, well accepted than what it has been previously. And as that was often a hurdle to investing in things like agriculture and food, that acceptance has become uh, more broad-based. Wayne noted too that there is an increase in investors wanting to offer up more than just money. In the area of startups, what I think is super interesting, and I've noticed this in a number of the startups that where I've done some advisory and done some analysis work on, is that often the investor comes with a certain skill set, which actually value adds significantly to the skill sets of those people already involved uh, in the opportunity. So how does this work in practice? By definition, each of these direct investments can be different. But Wayne gave me a great example. I ran into an investor who had a particular interest uh, in genetics. You know, he, he was, he'd been running uh, pharmaceutical startups and so forth for many, many years. And he had an interest in animal genetics and in particular beef cattle. Now, he, he was working with a, a farmer who also had a significant interest in, in improving the genetics of the particular breed that they were working with. And so both of them together in a sort of a partnership, I suppose, and in working with uh, an animal geneticist uh, as a bit of a team, they then went on to do significant data collection, um, continuing to refine the breed itself, working on different feed mixes, that is very intense monitoring and the investment in those technologies which could help them not only track emissions, but also collate the data and make very useful analysis of that data to improve uh, their breeding activities and the genetics that they were accessing, not just uh, domestically, but also overseas. This is a great example of how investors can have transferable specialty knowledge or interests that can be matched with entrepreneurs or businesses who also share those interests. 
this has been a, a significant success. You know, now they're selling this uh, hybrid animal on the, the domestic market that they're associated with. And, you know, it's an ongoing and reiterative process. But of course, you know, he puts significant amount of his own personal time into this. So not every investor has uh, the opportunity to invest that level of time or is in a location that can provide that opportunity to have hands-on experience. But it's a process that when you speak with them, uh, it's really invigorated that investor in the segment that he had a great deal of specialty in, albeit it wasn't in animal agriculture itself. This is probably the oldest investment model, and it endures for good reason. Done well, there's a very direct line of sight to where the money is going, and it can be more of a partnership in the investor-entrepreneur relationship than is sometimes the case with more professionalised or arm's-length investing, such as allocating the same amount of capital to a fund. We heard from our entrepreneurs the value that the right type of individual investor can bring to a company by sharing their expertise. This model is a much more direct person-to-person exchange than in larger-scale startup investing, which also means the relative importance of environmental, financial, or social impact can be weighed up on a case-by-case basis. Timescales for growth or exit can also be seen on a case-by-case basis, because the model is less bound by timescale commitments made to other people. However, there are also drawbacks most conspicuous of which is that it's hard to scale and replicate. Not all entrepreneurs have access to the right wealthy person or wealthy family for this to be an option, nor do investors have visibility to all entrepreneurs working on things that interest them. Even where those connections exist, this model relies upon an alignment of interests and those interpersonal relationships remaining strong. As with any other investor relationship, a single large investor can have a lot of power over the direction of a company. In the event that the relationship goes sour for any reason, the experience can be pretty dreadful. So, moving from one end of the spectrum to the other, instead of one extremely high net worth individual investing in specific projects that interest them in a partnership, another model turns that on its head and allows many people to invest in a small way in a particular venture. That model is called crowdfunding. Ben Honan looks after financial innovation at the organization Climate Kick in Amsterdam. Kick stands for Knowledge, Innovation and Community, and Climate Kick is the EU's climate innovation initiative. It's very much founded in this idea of bringing innovators together with scientific research from universities as well as you know organizations businesses and and farmers and and whatnot to work together in a structured way to bring innovation and new ways of thinking to age-old societal challenges it's not just thinking they're engaged with though Here, it becomes obvious that finance and the financial system is critical to that because money makes the world go round. It changes people's behaviours. It it tells people how to spend their time and it influences what they buy from one another. So we felt it was uh, very important to engage in financial innovation uh, in the context of the climate challenge to make sure that money could be redirected into more important sort of uh, green and sustainable purposes. Climate Kick has a series of initiatives that help to support entrepreneurs focused on the climate change challenge. 
So at different stages along this journey, the Climate Kick team gets to see ideas and teams they believe could be really successful. And Ben has been part of the team thinking about and experimenting with ways of financing these businesses to accelerate progress and better pursue their mission. Crowdfunding is a way of raising investment from a large group of people. The UK has become a leader in this space due to a conducive regulatory environment, with Cedars and another company, Crowdcube, being the two largest companies acting as conduits for individuals who want to invest in startups. We formed a strategic partnership with Cedars, and the idea is to give the, the startups and entrepreneurs that we work with an additional source of funding to make it easier. So we, we tend to find that it takes six to nine months to raise your first Series A serious investment round after you've set the after you're ready and you've started to look. So we want to short circuit that a little bit and say, um, you know, can we reduce that down to maybe five or six months um, by bringing a new source of funding to the table, which is the crowd and crowd investing. The focus is on companies that have some traction. They're more than just an idea at this point, and some may even have paying customers. Many individuals invest, often involving relatively small sums, for which these investors receive an equity stake, in the same way as the VCs we discussed earlier. Although these many small stakes are aggregated via a nominee structure, so that the company has just one extra shareholder entity, rather than dozens. Through this route, companies are able to raise several million pounds of funding. Indeed, both Cedars and Crowdcube reported well over £200 million invested in each of their respective platforms in the first half of 2021 alone. Crowdfunding offers a, an interesting nexus point to open up and make your business visible to more people, some of which may be potential customers as well as potential investors, and build a little bit of that momentum with your friends and family and people that you meet at the conference and um, at the coffee shop to say, you know, look, the world needs to change and I'm trying to change it. Um, why don't you come along for the ride? And the crowd element I think allows a bit of democratisation and get more people in into thinking about what investing in a startup might mean for climate action and how that can have a local impact. Of course, it's a very risky game, uh, so you shouldn't do it if you don't know what you're, <laughs> what you're getting into. Um, but we think it's a, a fun thing to put on the table to say, hey, you know, these businesses are interesting. They're trying to do the right thing and, and um, they'd love your support as well. Through this route, companies are able to raise investment, although in many cases, the sums invested are quite a lot less than the amount of money they can raise from professional investors, such as venture capitalists or family offices. But what's really critical is that it also demonstrates buy-in, often of customers or potential customers. And this may be one reason that the model seems to have found a particular resonance with UK-based agricultural startups and has been used to good effect by the likes of small robot company, Crover, and more recently, the livestock platform, Breeder. The reason for this is the nature of the farmer customer. To paraphrase Pete Nelson, the agricultural communities in places like North America, Europe, and Australasia are pretty small communities that are tightly knit and highly influential for each other. This makes them a hybrid, neither quite a consumer market nor a business-to-business -business market. Seeing others in the community engage and have success with an innovation lends credibility for others in that community. 
The crowdfunding model allows an individual farmer to buy into a vision even if they do not have the money, time, appetite or expertise to be an angel investor in the classic sense. It's actually a great example of not assuming who is the crowd, right? So because when you open it up, you can find these niche communities that you maybe never would have thought about before. So, you know, sometimes when I first started thinking about crowd investing, I thought about it in a quite simplistic way. But when you bring in an example of uh, small robots and uh, agricultural technology, then all of a sudden the crowd is a different crowd because then you're looking at people who are interested specifically in ad tech. They have a farming background. They understand robotics, which sounds niche, but actually there maybe is a thousand or two thousand people in the UK who who are in that that crowd, so to speak, who are in that community and uh, would be quite interested to invest in the business and also interestingly lend a hand. You know, um, I know this person who can help you do this part. I, let's connect you into here, and so it starts to build a bit of community action, which I think is quite um, useful for entrepreneurs who are, are starting to get off the ground. On face value, crowdfunding sounds like an ideal way to raise some finance and to reach an audience. But I wanted to know if Ben had noticed how other more traditional investors felt about entrepreneurs wanting to have crowdfunding along for the ride. You know, originally with the Cedars program, we had about 10 startups sign up to it um, and say, I want to work with Climate Kick and with Cedars to run a crowdfunding campaign. And then we had quite a few actually from continental Europe drop out because of their sort of Existing, uh, you might say traditional uh, venture capital investors didn't like the idea of a crowd campaign. You know, sometimes reasons weren't given at all. Other times, reasons were the cap table challenge or, you know, what, why, why is the internet getting involved here, kind of um, just general innovation challenges. So my experience is that in the UK, UK investors are quite familiar with the idea of crowd equity campaigns. And I think that's a reflection of the regulated status that it has in in the UK. And that in in, uh, continental Europe, it's a little bit the new kid on the block. And so it generates a bit of hesitation here and there. But I think all of it is resolvable, especially as the new crowdfunding directive comes online. Uh, towards the end of this year across Europe that that will help bring a, um, a bit more comfort to the whole process. I'm quite convinced that uh, more eyes on a, you know, more people thinking about it and more people involved in it produces a better outcome. If I was sitting there thinking, which would I prefer a world where the investment decisions are made by a small club of five or 10 people or a wider club of 1,000 or 2,000 people. I'd say let's trust the crowd because usually there's a lot of wisdom in there. There's a lot of expertise in there. Um, But, yeah, I think it's certainly an interesting space to sort of open up and make things more accessible to a wider audience. More decision makers leads to arguably better market signals about what is interesting to potential customers. And if the farming community were to engage more with this approach, it allows the group with the most to gain from the new ways of doing things to invest and benefit directly from successful companies bringing new technologies to market. But it has its limitations too. The model probably would not suit deeply technical areas because the crowd has to understand and value the idea that the company's working on. Also, the total cash invested by these retail investors is still relatively small compared to the tens or even hundreds of millions of pounds or dollars that later stage companies need to raise in each round. So, as an alternative financing model, crowdfunding is definitely a welcome addition, another tool in the box. 
it's still an equity investment and investors are still relying on an exit to get a return on their investment. However, it democratizes who can invest and helps to extend the range of ventures that might be backed by demonstrating market interest. There is scope to extend even beyond this model. When private capital is being invested, there are no hard and fast rules about when or how the investment should pay back. Let's consider some of the other options that exist, which might be useful. So I was an investment banker, started out in mergers and acquisitions right after college and pretty quickly figured out that I didn't really want to use what I enjoyed doing, which was finance, to make rich people richer um, and particularly to work with some not necessarily ethical companies and not even just not ethical, just not doing positive things for humanity. So at that time, the term impact investing hadn't yet been invented. And so I found myself really struggling to figure out how I could use finance for good. That's Orni Patton-Power again, the author, angel investor, academic and investment advisor. Orni has worked all over the world using financial structuring to be able to allocate capital for positive social and environmental impact. The term impact investing has since entered mainstream investment vocabulary, an investment being based on non-financial dimensions such as social inclusion or environmental impact, as well as consideration of financial returns. I was very convinced that how we invest is as important as what we invest in. And because it was the very beginning of impact investing, really the focus was just on capital out the door and making returns and showing that this was possible. And if what we're trying to do in impact investing is fix some of the issues um, in traditional finance that, that have caused some of the gigantic issues in the world, the thing that I, I struggle with is we're using old models that have gotten us where we are. And in many cases, we're replicating the issues of exclusivity, inequality, and just the, the lack of diversity um, in the types of companies we invest in and even the investment companies. Orni noted that when it comes to startups raising investment, VC and other types of risk capital providers look at their exit. And that dictates whether or not they can put money in. So if they don't see a company becoming a unicorn billion dollar opportunity, or they don't see how they can turn that investment back into cash, they won't invest. So that means that we are restricting risk capital to only those organizations that are projecting being the next Facebook, Uber, etc. And that basically takes out 99% of businesses. And those businesses need risk capital as well. And so something like convertible revenue-based um, and redeemable equity, both options that have what I call a structured exit, don't require them to, don't require the underlying companies to list on a public exchange to be purchased at a huge multiple um, in the future, actually allows them to use their internal revenues and profits to repurchase the shares from investors. Um, and investors still can make a very decent return. And the entrepreneurs are then able to access the capital and able to run the companies the way they want, they want to run the companies. The two models that Orney refers to convertible revenue-based finance and redeemable equity allow the investment to move between being an equity investment or a debt investment. Let's break it down. 
Revenue-based financing is a loan based on the historical values of a company's turnover. It allows an organisation to pay off the loan as a percentage of their ongoing revenue, and it can be capped, and therefore doesn't become unaffordable going forward. This type of funding is relatively common. What's less common is convertible revenue-based financing, which, Orny explains, takes the idea one step further. Now, convertible revenue-based financing is just that same concept, just taken a little bit riskier um, and potentially not looking for the repayment in a shorter period of time. And also with the caveat that like traditional venture capital, that can actually convert into equity in the future if the organization does raise other financing. Redeemable equity, on the other hand, is where investors purchase a share of the company, but in the contract there is an agreement allowing the founder of the company to repurchase some or all of those shares in the future. What this then allows them to do is to take that ownership back for themselves, or one of the things that I, a way that I really like the the application of redeemable equity is actually for the um, founders to sell this equity to an investor. And then when they repurchase it, actually using the repurchasing to distribute it to a broader base of their employees. So you can actually use this as a way to transition toward more, towards more broad-based ownership, um, which is quite interesting. It can be a capped amount. So say you've purchased the shares, someone's purchased the shares for $10 a share, you need to repurchase them for $40 a share. Or it can be a negotiation at some point in the future where you decide the fair value potentially based off of an external valuation, um, or it can be a combination of the two. These models are both highly relevant to ag tech entrepreneurship because they offer some mechanisms to deal with most of the key challenges that this sector faces in connection with the VC model. If you recall, the challenges around the complex and fragmented markets in agriculture can limit the upper size of many ag tech companies. Also, recall the impact that highly consolidated input and offtake companies have on exit opportunities, which straight equity investments rely on to generate a return. These options set things up so that an investor can make a return on their investment without having to sell the company or achieve a huge valuation. This type of structure for investing in startups is hugely overshadowed by the traditional angel investment and then VC model that we discussed earlier. But Orny is certainly not the only person thinking about rebelling against the orthodoxy. Enter the zebra movement. So there's the Zebra movement, um, which is um, a, a movement that really looks at both the underlying organizations themselves um, being both profit and purpose driven. And that's where the zebra idea comes in. So zebras are real, unlike unicorns, which are fictional. Um, and they have the black and white stripes, which represent the profit and purpose. And so this movement is really about telling founders, it's okay to not want to build a unicorn. It's okay to want to build a sustainable business that is that's providing impact in your community, um, that is providing good jobs, that you know wants to grow, but doesn't necessarily want hyper growth. And that also extends to the financing. Orni has been vocal in her desire to change the way we think about financing businesses and has had her fair share of pushback, but she believes there is a place for it in the market. I would say 10 years ago, um, <laughs> certainly there was very little appetite. And to be fair, to my perspective, I had very little data. 
So, you know, there was, there was a lot of pretty, I would say, rational pushback around this. Now, what I would say is the, the easiest one is, of course, well, we, we're not a charity. We can't sacrifice our, our returns. And, you know, my response to that is twofold. So one, there's a difference around how you put together portfolios. For instance, when you're using structures like redeemable equity and um, convertible revenue-based financing, where instead of looking for one or two organizations that are going to provide all of the return for your portfolio, you're actually looking at investing in companies that are likely to provide a lower return as opposed to unlikely to provide a high return. And so if you do the math, actually, and there are multiple investors that have now done this, that have created these portfolios that actually return on a cash on cash basis, very similar. In fact, in some cases, higher returns than traditional venture capitalists, but the way they've put together that portfolio is very different. They have 80% of their companies are hitting a you know three times return on invest as opposed to 10% of your companies hitting a 10 times return. And actually, when you do the math, it makes it's, it's, it's similar. So one of the things I tell funders, particularly funders that have capital that they can play with different types of capital. So I'm not talking about traditional venture capitalists, but funders like family offices, foundations, um, corporates, um, governments, essentially development funders, anyone that has a broader pool of capital is to think about how you use capital that has more of a debt um, risk um, associated with it, capital that has more of a development risk associated with it, um, and actually playing with that full spectrum. So paint with your whole set of colors as opposed to just one. Um, and then when you start to think about that, all of a sudden the opportunity is, oh, and hey, there's also huge demand um, for different types of capital all over the world by SMEs. And so it's not just about saying, all right, we're going to take a lower return and go give money to these organizations that need it. It's about thinking about how you set up your portfolio and also thinking about the different types of capital that you can use for different types of risk within these organizations. The last model I'm going to share with you is the most radically different of them all. It aims to change what kind of entrepreneurs receive capital disrupt the power dynamic between investor and entrepreneur, and embrace the idea of supporting ventures that may never be unicorns, but still have a major important role to play in the world. The SHE-EO business model tears up the traditional investing rulebook and starts with a totally different approach. Vicky Saunders has been an entrepreneur her whole career. She has co-founded and run ventures in Europe, Toronto, and Silicon Valley, and has taken a company public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. She's now the founder of SheEO, a global initiative to radically transform how we support, finance, and celebrate specifically female and non-binary entrepreneurs. I love identifying things that feel out of coherence, that don't feel quite right, uh, and then going uh, at it to try and figure out how to transform it. So uh, I am very much a problem solver, a change maker interested in transforming systems and myself, because it all starts with the self. And I am uh, very passionate about business innovation, new business models, new kinds of finance. And most recently, really just how do we create more equitable systems? I've been quite obsessed with how you create new economic models for a long time. 
And I think that the world is revealing to us how broken our systems are, um, how much inequality they're creating, and how we really need another way forward. Vicky's business experience has given her an extensive and somewhat unique insight into finance business models and the systems built around them. I've had every kind of funding there is, every single kind of funding. And I've seen all of the bugs in the system, as it were, to use a technology phrase. We're living at a time where literally all of our systems and structures need to be redesigned. We need innovation. We need really new approaches. We need new ways of thinking about business. We need new organizing structures. We need new business models that aren't extractive. And we need to be focused on, I think we need to be focused on, uh, the top priorities we're facing on the planet. So we call that the world's to-do list. Vicky also noticed an unsettling trend in startup finance. Who gets funded is seriously unbalanced. About 2% of global capital goes to 51% of the population. It's statistically impossible for that to occur without lots of biases built into the systems. But the systems are so well designed that we can't even see through them half the time. We're so conditioned to think this is the way and maybe there's something wrong. So the narrative out there is that we need to fix women entrepreneurs because they're not getting money. And therefore, we need to teach them how to pitch better. We need to teach them how to pitch like men, like all those things. Those are the questions that come up. From my experience, I just know that's not true. So we decided to start there. Revenue generating ventures, majority owned by women and non-binary folk working on the world's to-do list. So in order to tackle the world's to-do list and shake up the system, Vicky founded SheEO in 2013 as a means of financing and supporting businesses started by women and non-binary people. But it takes a radically, totally different approach. Ventures that are between 50K and 2 million in revenue is our criteria. So you're in market, you've got some customers, and then we have this unique way of like getting women's capital aggregated together. So women in our community gift their capital, uh, 71 pounds a month, $92 in other countries where there's dollars. And that money's pulled together and it stays in your country. So hundreds of women in each country contribute this capital, pulled together, and then we loan it out at 0% interest to the entrepreneurs who apply. We pick a certain number of entrepreneurs each year based on the number, the, how much money is there. And then they get access to all of our skills and all of our networks and our expertise. And then those entrepreneurs have a very, very different experience in our world, CEO world, uh, versus the regular world that we're sort of stuck in, which is they have a team of hundreds and now thousands of women to help them with what they need, as opposed to doing this separately alone by themselves, thinking they have to do everything themselves. We are actually operating in five countries where we're loaning out money in five countries, but we have activators for many more countries. They're just jumping in from Africa, from Saudi Arabia, from Hong Kong, from Singapore. Uh, Anyone anywhere in the world can activate. They just pick a country that has the closest time zone uh, to them. Investment is not easy to raise for any entrepreneur, but it's well evidenced that if you're female or not white, or even from a less affluent background, your chances are much, much worse. Most people recognize that talent, creativity, tenacity, and drive is not concentrated in one part of society. But the finance to turn that energy into new companies certainly is. The big issue really is the power dynamic. So yes, we can shift around the mechanisms by which money goes out the door, but what does the power dynamic look like? That's the work. That's the real work we need to do. And so we are noticing different initiatives that are experimenting with this. 
like ours, where we're practicing power with to see what kind of results you get when your capital goes out the door in this kind of environment versus a power over. Truly, you can't have equitable systems when a small group is just like trying to, you know, be the supremacy of rights for what they think matters. Let's recap. Shio is a bit like a venture fund, but it doesn't set out to make a profit. The capital is gifted to the fund and loaned out at zero interest. This is a very different way of thinking about economic development. And, you know, the what has occurred, we started with these 0% interest loans, which a lot of people are like, what? You're creating all this value and helping all these entrepreneurs. Why aren't you taking something from them? Because that's our thinking in the world, right? And But why would we make money? This is another co- totally crazy question for people to consider. Why would we be out there at this moment in time when the sky is falling, when things are on fire everywhere, inequality is off the charts? Why would we be trying to get a financial return off incredibly innovative people who are stepping out of their comfort zone and really tackling some of the biggest challenges we face. I I mean, honestly, it's just, it's to me, it's a, I don't understand that thinking. I think we're kind of upside down where we have centered and given supremacy to people with money. And what we really need is the people with the ideas to help us get out of this. That is what should be on stage, not the money. Vicky is keen also to stress that she does not see CEO as philanthropy. It's not charity. Because it's not like, here's the money, go do what you want. This money's paid back. So we have a 100% payback rate in Canada where the first loans have just come back after five years. We won't maintain that globally, but we have a very, very high payback rate. So not only is your capital gifted to people that are solving major challenges that benefit all of us, but that money's coming back for the next ones to do more. So it's rotating through this process. And then there's a ton of data to show that women are more capital efficient return capital with better rates than their male counterparts. And if women were funded to the same degree as men, the job creation, the innovation would be off the charts globally. CEO is also different because of the emphasis on community. The community decides which companies will be backed and the companies in return gain probably as much or more from the engagement of the community as they do the capital. We're very conditioned into this separation and isolation narrative for entrepreneurs And it's been my experience that when you do this together in a community, it's faster, it's more successful, it's healthier, uh, and it really changes the conditions for success. We go in there and we vote for the companies we're most excited about. We use our power with them. This is an amazing company. It should exist in the world. I want to help it. I want to be a customer or tell my friends about it or open doors for them before maybe they would get access normally. This is one of the ways in which the power dynamic referred to at the beginning is disrupted and a much more collaborative approach is engendered. People in general are very locked into a, what am I getting for my money and how do I get more? Instead of like we, the scarcity mindset is so baked into everything, right? You got to book a vacation. It's like three people are looking at this one left, like constantly there are all these messages that are subconscious often of there's not enough. There's not enough. You need more. There's a person who has more than you. You need to be careful. Like everyone's worried about being a bag lady, bag man, like at the end, you know? And so hold on, hold on, don't share. And the narrative is constantly there, you, you know, billionaire, trillionaire, as opposed to is any society healthy if it has billionaires? What is happening here? Uh, so this supremacy 
um, and this almost incarceration of our brains into a single way of being and doing, and I need more and I don't have enough and I'm not enough. It's control from the system that we're in to keep us controlled and to keep us separate. And this whole system will unravel in an instant when we come together because we'll realize, oh, we have everything we need. The other thing which is very different about this approach compared to the traditional model is the view taken on growth and market domination. As we've noted several times, the VC model is only appropriate for a tiny proportion of ventures and entrepreneurs. Vicky talks about taking a more diverse attitude to the way in which we go about entrepreneurship, injecting some nuance into the debate. You know, this concept of what is a startup, a startup is an idea that wants to take over a market that's going to grow really, really quickly and get you a 10x return. Like, I think there's a bunch of things attached to what is a startup versus what is a business? What is a small business? So it gets used interchangeably all the time. Uh, and so this is why we changed the language and called you a venture. And so a venture working on the world's to-do list can have any structure. It could be a charity, a not-for-profit, a for-profit. It needs to have revenue in order to pay back a loan. Like we change the language on that because uh, some people really resonate with startups, others don't. And a, a whole bunch of baggage comes with what we think that means. As I mentioned in episode two, in the conversations I had while researching this podcast, there was often a lack of nuance. If a venture's not going to be the next Uber or Airbnb, the dialogue fairly rapidly turned to the mom and pop model instead, neglecting the vast and important range of opportunities in between. Uh, this go big or go home kind of thing where everybody has to work 24 seven and you're basically my slave. If I gave you money, if I invested in you, it's like, you better hit these milestones. And if not, I'm going to take another chunk out of you. Like that is the vibe in it. Uh, this, it, everything is a power over narrative, every, every, every part of it. And how can we shift that? It would be easy to dismiss this as too extreme or too radical, but the CEO model's success is having an impact in the wider financial services scene, as other companies recognise that the structures around the finance they provide has as much impact as the finance itself. I have a lot of optimism around that as people recognise that doing more of the same is going to create more of the same challenges. So the shift that needs to happen, the transformation that needs to happen comes when there's a deep, deep awareness building across society that we need to do things differently. And even in the small period of time that our tiny little community has been together with CEO, we went from, huh, 0% interest loan. What is this? And doing it in this trust-based way with loaning out money on 10 questions. That's all we ask our entrepreneurs to uh, and a bank watching us from the very beginning doing that BMO in Canada to then matching our terms uh, at 0% interest loan no collateral three page agreement wow so that was like a systems level process innovation that that happened by being deeply in relationship over 5 years them watching us do things differently not fitting into their risk criteria but watching what we did and they're like this is working so well here can we just match your terms so to see a, a bank in a global regulatory environment step in and, and make a change like that, to me is, whoa, that's amazing. That usually takes decades. As we've said before with other models, this one doesn't suit every entrepreneur or every circumstance. It's a model that relies on a community of activators or investors to provide the capital. Trust in that community's views about which ventures to back, 
and a willingness to provide the non-financial support that the activators bring. It also relies on the entrepreneurs being bound by a social and moral expectation to use the capital appropriately, as this model isn't relying on a pound of flesh to balance up the equation. This organisation can afford to be radical. Everyone in the community is committed to the bigger cause and the experiment. Nobody's pension is directly dependent on the successful deployment of this capital. And so the regulatory guardians of our financial system that exist to prevent financial scandals could be a little bit more arm's length. But the really important challenge it presents is how we think about investing. The questions it throws up about power dynamics and inequalities in the current investment process and how we can make the entrepreneur more central. When pulling together this information, a lot of people I talk to recognise that we need alternatives to the venture capital model to support innovation and entrepreneurial success in the ag tech ecosystem. And yet, I found it surprisingly difficult to find examples of innovative models of finance and investment to draw on. I find it curious that the early stage investment community, for a sector that invests in innovation and recognises it's making risky bets, is so notably conservative in how they think about their own investment models. It might be that there's no incentive to innovate. Venture capitalists are well rewarded both financially and in social esteem for their work. If it ain't broke from that perspective, why fix it? It might also be that there's a risk aversion, the nobody gets fired for buying IBM mentality. You're subject to less criticism for risk-taking if you're allocating money to a high-profile, well-worn model that's proven successful for others. Another possibility is that the mental models we have around investing, the systems that control our incentives and forces in the economy as a whole, drive us back continually to the traditional ways of doing things. It's a very crude characterization, but in doing this work, I became aware of a chain of extraction all the way along the agricultural and agri-tech value chain. What we've seen is that to achieve its goals, agriculture as a whole extracts from the environment, water, biodiversity, carbon. To develop and launch their ventures, entrepreneurs extract time, expertise and goodwill from the farmers and the ag-tech entrepreneurial ecosystem as they test and trial different ways of doing things. Investors extract financial returns, not to mention the energy and aspirations of entrepreneurs. And added to that, everyone is extracting something from the public purse in tax breaks, incentives, subsidies, and publicly funded research. If there is some truth in this, it raises some difficult questions. If we're in a chain of extraction, how realistic is it that we can use Agritech to make a real change to the food system? Is it realistic to think that we can use Agritech to make agriculture better, more sustainable and more equitable for growers and workers if we structure things this way? And yet, it's not clear that there's a single point of failure. Everyone in the Agtech entrepreneurial ecosystem in the value chain is trying to do the right thing for the business or the organisation they work for. The VC has to earn the trust of the pension fund that's allocated capital into their care. The employee of an agricultural corporate has to protect and grow the market share of that company. 
Agriculture, by definition, can't produce healthy and affordable food for billions of humans without some impact on the natural environment. There isn't a single bogeyman to point to. It is clear, however, that interests and incentives along the chain are often not aligned. What works for one person in the chain doesn't necessarily work for another. And the environment comes off worst of all because it has few powerful forces protecting its interests. Which leads me to the most radical questions of all. Do we need to make changes to our economic system and worldview in order to change this dynamic? This is the topic I'll be exploring in the next episode. Thank you for listening. I asked my interviewees for recommended background reading about the topics we discussed in each episode. You can find many of these and other references I found helpful in the show notes. For more information on AgTech entrepreneurship, including interviews with the contributors and other AgTech resources, visit agtechthinking.com. This podcast has been produced as a result of the generous support of the Elizabeth Creek Charitable Trust. It's the culmination of my Nuffield Farming Scholarship research. The normal method of research, travel, was frustrated due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and this podcast arose as a response to circumstances.